You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 17th of January 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London and Davos, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up on today's show, Belarus and Russia hold joint military drills. Is this a precursor to a step-up in the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Also ahead, the UK debates how to react to the execution of a British national in Iran. Let there be no doubt he fell victim to the political vendettas of a vicious regime. We'll also hear from the former Prime Minister of Finland about life in power. In government for eight years, it's pretty much crisis management from morning to night. In academia and my current life, I have more time to read and reflect and write, and I'm less worried about what I say and what the reactions are. Plus, in 30 minutes, we head to the mountains to join the Monocle team on the ground at the World Economic Forum. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. For the first time in six decades, China's population has fallen. The population last year dropped by 850,000 from 2021. The White House says no visitor logs are available for President Biden's private home. It follows the discovery of at least 20 classified documents at his house in Delaware. And a former commander with the Russian paramilitary Wagner Group has claimed asylum in Norway after deserting from the mercenary outfit. He claims he's seen war crimes in Ukraine. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, how seriously should we be taking the joint military exercises currently being held by Russia and Belarus? After all, Moscow used its neighbour Belarus as a springboard to invade Ukraine last February. There are concerns it could be using its ally to launch a fresh ground offensive in Ukraine. Well, Dr Jenny Mathers is a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University. A very good morning to you, Jenny. Good morning. So these exercises started yesterday. What exactly are they? What, what exactly are they? Describe them. Well, uh, this is really part of a ongoing, uh, longer term series of cooperations, military cooperations between Minsk and Moscow. And so since the uh, mass invasion began in Ukraine in in February of last year, uh, what we've seen is Russia putting more and more of its troops and forces in Belarus initially uh, to launch the initial invasion. Um, But then later on, Belarus has been used as a place where newly mobilized Russian soldiers are trained. Um, It's been used as a place where Russia launches uh, sort of missile and airstrikes at Ukraine. And so now what's happening is further further joint exercises, further cooperation, you know, this indication that Russia and Belarus are becoming um, closer and closer militarily and that they are preparing for, for something big, potentially. Indeed, what could this mean for Putin's war? Well, it's it's certainly likely that there's going to be some kind of an offensive from Russia in the spring. And it's possible that it might include another attack from the north, from Belarusian territory towards Kiev, uh, as indeed they they tried to do last year. Um, however, it's possible that this might be a bit of an elaborate performance designed to distract the Ukrainians and divert some of their uh, military forces 
up to the north of the country uh, to try and, and prevent such an invasion. So I think we can't rule out the possibility that uh, Russia might be just uh, engineering a rather elaborate ruse. Does Russia at the moment have the resources to, to engineer such a ruse? Well, it has the resources to to carry out this kind of performance and move forces around uh, without deploying them into Ukraine itself, because it's got all these newly mobilized uh, troops who are being trained and, and prepared, presumably, for this spring offensive. Uh, the question is whether it will have the capability, even later in the year, even with these additional troops, to launch an effective and militarily significant attack on Ukraine. And that, I think, is what we're, we're waiting to see, because Russia's military capability has been very significantly degraded uh, during this war. It, it, it turned out to be no, not nearly as as uh, powerful and important as we we had thought it was, um, but it's been further degraded as the war has gone on, and even the inflection of of these uh, you know hundreds of thousands of new troops um, is not necessarily going to turn the tide for Russia because it lacks um, experienced uh, professional uh, sort of commanders, leaders, trainers. Um, it 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 had wiped out really a whole uh, almost generation of these kinds of, of important professional forces during the early months of the war. Uh, and those cannot be uh, quickly and easily replaced. So what difference does this mean now for, for Ukraine? You said that, you know, it might be victim of a double bluff at the moment. But the fact remains that to, to have the full participation of another country on its border would, would seriously change its ability to, to, to resist or would it? Well, it's highly unlikely that Belarus will actually commit its own troops to a new invasion from the north. Um, you know, Lukashenko, the Russia, uh, the Belarusian leader, has been um, avoiding doing this really for the past year, and for good reason. You know, the Belarusian society is very much against uh, their own forces going into Ukraine. They're very much against this war, um, and you know, Lukashenko's position is not exactly secure. He's had to rely upon uh, Russian forces to really shore him up. Up. So, you know, he would be very foolish indeed to send his own forces into Ukraine. Um, and if he thought it was such a good idea, I think he would have done it by now. So I think it's unlikely we're going to see Belarusian forces fighting in Ukraine. But Belarus is likely to continue to be a platform uh, from which Russia can launch attacks, whether this is simply sort of airstrikes and missile strikes or whether this might be a new invading force. You don't know, yet to see. Tell us a little bit more, Jenny, about the amount of pressure that Lukashenko might find himself in at the moment. Obviously, there's the strong, deep ties to, to Moscow and now, well, it's sort of almost payback time for him now, isn't it? Um, but the fact remains is that domestically, the strong man who will override everything. But but what is his position at home with all this? So ever since um, the presidential elections of August 2020, um, which were contested and which, you know, almost certainly he lost, but hasn't acknowledged that, um, ever since then, he's been much more reliant upon uh, Russian support and the threat of Russian military support uh, to keep him in power. And, you know, this has been the case throughout the, the many months of uh, Belarusian civil society protests and, you know, sort of mass protests and, and all kinds of, of demonstrations against Lukashenko. Um, but what we've seen in the past with Lukashenko is that he actually prefers to be a bit more of a free actor. He he likes to be able to manipulate uh, the West and Russia and play them off against each other. And the problem he's in now is that because he's so beholden to Putin for support to maintain his power at home, um, he has a hard time separating himself from Putin's military efforts in Ukraine, uh, although it would appear that he would like to. Uh, so he's playing um, a tricky role here. He's he's performing 
through his statements and through you know this this military cooperation and joint exercises and so on, he's performing his loyalty to Putin. Uh, but at the same time, that loyalty is definitely strained, and he is showing signs that he's really not willing to commit uh, Belarusian forces to this war. Tell us a little bit also about um, what this means for Lithuania and Latvia bordering Belarus. Um, obviously having quite a difficult neighbour next door. But does this change the way that they can approach things, given this, this sort of ever closer deepening tie between Belarus and Russia? Well, I don't think it changes things on a day-to-day basis. I think uh, the the Latvian, um, Latvia, Lithuanian and uh, Estonia, all the Baltic states are very much aware of the dynamics that are going on between Belarus and Russia. Uh, They're obviously at a very heightened level of security uh, with this war in Ukraine happening. Uh, They're they're very, very aware of all the, the issues involved. So they're keeping a close eye on this, certainly. Um, but, you know, as I say, I don't see this uh, most recent set of military uh, exercises as making a step change in this relationship or indeed in the conflict in Ukraine. It's more of a an ongoing situation, uh, an indication uh, of, you know, Belarusian and Russian cooperation, uh, attempts to send signals to Ukraine and to the West, uh, attempts to indicate that uh, Belarus might be doing more. Um, while Lukashenko is trying to to avoid that at all costs. Um, while I've got you, Jenny, can we just briefly touch on the story that's been breaking in the last couple, in about 12 or 24 hours about this former commander with the Russian paramilitary group Wagner? Um, he's crossed over into Norway. Um, he's ended up at near. He's, he's ended up being held in prison in, in Oslo at the moment. Um, he deserted Wagner, claiming that he'd seen war crimes in Ukraine. I mean, tell us about how important this is. I think it's it's very significant um, because it provides the the West with uh, an eyewitness, with uh, someone who is in a position to to speak with authority about what he's seen and what he's done um, as part of Wagner Group. And you know we know there've been numerous reports about the the brutality that the Wagner Group soldiers have shown towards Ukrainians and also shown towards each other. Um, you know, there have been numerous cases of uh, its own soldiers being executed uh, for desertion or for, you know, uh, surrendering to the Ukrainians. So it's very significant, this latest move, uh, because we now have, you know, a, a sort of a credible witness, if you like, uh, for these war crimes and, and for the actions that the Wagner Group has been taking. Um, and it also is important, I think, because it it undermines this aura of authority um, and invincibility that has surrounded the Wagner group, that they can do anything, they can go anywhere, they can be effective, um, and they're, you know, nobody uh, deserts from them and they're very loyal to each other. You know, clearly that's not the case. And, you know, you have rats basically running from from the sinking ship, people seeing that, uh, you know, this situation is is going into a dead end. They don't want to be associated uh, with the with the crimes of, of the Wagner group and they want to get out. Indeed. I mean, the, the thing that struck me is that what ha- is happening in Ukraine is, by all accounts, for this commander, at least too much, even for Wagner. Exactly. And, you know, over the years, there have been uh, numerous credible reports about Wagner Group's brutality and ruthlessness in its operations in other countries, particularly in Africa, for example. Um, and and so this this the fact that, that this is the sticking point for someone, this was the straw that broke the camel's back, I think it really reflects quite how uh, brutal the war in Ukraine has been uh, and is um, and, you know, how important Wagner Group has been in pushing those levels of brutality and really being at the forefront. This is something that the the leader and, and senior members of the Wagner Group celebrate. They celebrate the fact that they're being very brutal and ruthless.
Jenny Mathers, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. You're with The Globalist. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. in Tehran and uh, 7.13, I should say, here in London. You're back with The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Now, the UK is examining its next move against Iran. It follows the execution of a British citizen accused of spying for the United Kingdom. Ali Raza Akbari was hanged after he was convicted of being an agent for MI6. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined by Sanam Vakil, who's Deputy Director of the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House. Very good morning to you, Sanam. Um, Now, just tell us a little bit about Ali Raza Akbari. Uh, He had been Iran's deputy defence minister. Um, Then he came to the United Kingdom and then he went back to Tehran. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, He was deputy defence minister um, in the 2000s under President Khatami. And he worked for a senior Iranian official, the defence minister at the time, named Ali Shamkhani. Um, After this uh, reformist presidency, he did come to the United Kingdom, and I think he went back and forth a few times, but in 2019, he was arrested um, with uh, accusations of espionage and collaborating with MI6. And he was held in jail for a few years, um, and news of his execution uh, came out just last week. Um, And the Iranian government escalated quite quickly um, and uh, ignored calls to halt execution of Mr. Akbari, really, I think, because they wanted to show a very strong resolve against uh, espionage, Western infiltration of Iran. And this comes at a time of escalating tensions around Iran's protests, uh, where the crackdown has been quite severe, but also over uh, the, the declining Iran nuclear agreement. And uh, Iran is also supporting Russia in the war in Ukraine. So we have all these other factors playing around around the circumstances of, of Ali Reza Akbari's death. There is also, uh, let's talk about the internal politics as well. What kind of message his, his death is sending to, let's say, people who, who are operating within the Iranian regime, but who are slightly more reformist? So Iranian politics is notoriously competitive and faction, factional, and it has always been uh, for o- over 40 years. Um, I think that uh, the killing of Mr. Akbari um, is designed to send a very strong message to anyone seeking to over um, to overhaul, reform the system that conservatives and specifically hardline conservatives are uh, very much in control and uh, looking to marginalize reformist voices. 
And you mentioned also the fact that this indicates a you know, tough treatment of foreign nationals, in this case a, a man of dual nationality, Iran British, um, to send a message to the West to say stop interfering with our business. Yes, and Iran is um, known to detain dual nationals. Um, it's been doing that for well over two decades. It doesn't recognize dual nationality. Um, but I would say there has been an escalation in this front as well, because it's not just detaining dual nationals, it's also detaining nationals, um, so citizens of other countries. A Belgian aid worker has been recently sentenced to over 40 years in prison for um espionage as well. So the government is is taking a very strong stance. Uh, It has a history of um, paranoid thinking about Western interference. It sort of evokes the Iran-Iraq war where Iran felt surrounded uh, by the region, but also that Western countries were supporting Saddam Hussein against Iran. It thinks back to the 1953 uh, MI6 sort of sponsored coup in Iran, and it sort of builds uh, perhaps a fantasy of the West trying to overthrow the Islamic Republic. So what can the UK do? Well, there are all sorts of debates underway. Of course, in the immediate response, there has been a sanctioning of Iran's prosecutor general. They have temporarily withdrawn Uh, the ambassador. Um, But the big discussion is whether uh, the UK government will prescribe Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is an important uh, military security and economic institution in Iran. And this would be um, a a huge escalation because they would be sanctioning um, a state institution and one that um, is very important inside the country. It is a difficult position that the United Kingdom faces with this, isn't it? Because the the Terrorism Act of 2000 here in the UK doesn't incorporate state actors uh, to designate as terrorist organisations. So this is not only politically difficult, but it will also take time to happen. Does the UK have time? Well, there's a lot of mounting pressure from uh, members of the Iranian diaspora, the international community. Uh, There was a huge demonstration outside of the EU parliament yesterday. We do have time. I think it's very important to make this decision if it's going to be taken carefully, because it's very easy in a way, uh, despite the legal uh, challenges to sanction the IRGC. It will be very hard should there come a point in time to unsanction the IRGC. And secondly, I would say that uh, a sanctioning would lead to a huge escalation of tensions. This entity would be considered a terrorist entity. It would result probably in Iran withdrawing its um, diplomatic representation with the UK. It would leave British nationals or dual nationals abandoned in Iran. And we might see the Iranian government also declaring the British military a terrorist entity. And this is sort of unknown territory where um, it could lead to very direct conflict. Now, now running alongside all this is the the fact that the UK has been very deeply involved in in trying to revive uh, the nuclear talks when it comes to the JCPOA. There is this huge diplomatic push to try to get Iran to come to the table in, in, in in a sort of constructive way to try and revive the nuclear deal. How do you balance this out? I mean, should what happened... What had happened to Ali Raza Akbari now alter the UK's involvement in reviving the nuclear deal? 
Well, let's consider this. Um, I think that uh, many people in the in in the international community, certainly the Iranian diaspora, um, and many states in the region see Iran as toxic, predatory, and would like the nature of the Islamic Republic to change. Um, but the the sort of challenge, the diplomatic challenge here is that. Um, Policymakers have been trying to segregate the nuclear issue and the escalation of Iran's nuclear program from human rights violations, from, for example, this brutal execution of Mr. Akbari. Um, but with uh, sanctioning of the IRGC and an escalation of tensions, it is very likely that the Islamic Republic will escalate in its nuclear program because it will begin to see the value of its nuclear program as the utmost vehicle to protect the Islamic Republic. And so thereby we will have more Islamic Republic rather than a changed or altered or more moderate Iran. Indeed, because the deal that would evolve, if you know, if, if, if Iran stepped up to the deal, it would include the lifting of sanctions, which of course is a reward for Iran, a country which has been cracking down on its citizens and executing dual nationals. Yes, and, and that, of course, is uh, the challenge um, because, on the one hand, we do have an escalating nuclear crisis that poses um, immense uh, security challenges for the international community and the entire region of the Middle East. Um, but, of course, Iran's brutal treatment of its citizens, its blatant uh, human rights violations um, are very hard to address. It's almost impossible to force the Islamic to change its behavior. And in this context of the protests, um, the international community sees an opportunity to pressure and punish um, and perhaps force change. Um, but of course, the analytical community, um, drawing from past history and examples, don't see sanctions as an effective tool in forcing regimes to change their behavior. Sanam Vakil, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. Still to come on today's Globalist, we'll be hearing from the former Prime Minister of Finland about life in power. I was in government for eight years. It's pretty much crisis management from morning to night. In academia and my current life, I have more time to read and reflect and write. And I'm less worried about what I say and what the reactions are. That's all to come on The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Time now to have a look at the papers. Hello, Vincent McAvinney. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Do you need an introduction? Regular Monocle 24 voice. There we are. Go for it. Yep. All well with you? All well, thank you very much. Good to have you with us Bit today. chilly this morning, isn't Tell it, me in about London? It. It's one of those things where you put all your clothes on before you leave the house. It is. I mean, last week you could just get away with a jumper. It was very mm, balmy. I've never yeah. been that kind of girl. Yeah. Um, if you're listening in Australia... There we are. Um, <laughs> right. Um, what's happening in the world of, of newspapers? Oh, a lot is happening. Uh, we have the start uh, late last night of a new kind of constitutional battle in the United Kingdom between Westminster and Scotland. Uh, and it is one that has a sort of red hot button issue at its centre. Uh, and that is the rights uh, around trans people and non-binary people uh, and 
uh, now the entire sort of UK operation of devolution uh, is also coming into question. So this is uh, legislation that the Scottish Parliament passed, uh, making it the first part of the UK to introduce a system of self-identification for people who want to change their gender and lowering the age to 16. Now, this was highly controversial in Scotland. It did not have public support, but the SNP decided to push on with it over the last couple of years. Fierce criticism from public figures, the likes of J.K. Rowling, who lives in Edinburgh, the author, of course, of Harry Potter. And then the SNP itself, it divided their ranks, but they got it over the line. However, Rishi Sunak's government here in Westminster says that the legislation is incompatible uh, with UK-wide equality legislation. And so for the first time since devolution was granted at the end of the 90s, Uh, It looks like this bill that the Scottish Parliament had passed, not yet an act, could be blocked from becoming law by Westminster because it would have repercussions across the rest of the United Kingdom. We look more generally at a situation here where sometimes it feels as if no matter what Scotland says, Westminster says no. And and it's and it seems to be a sort of a, a kind of a, an ongoing trajectory there. Now this this is a kind of an area of politics that you're particularly interested in here. Is that impression a correct one? I mean, potentially, you you do have the SNP in Scotland. They have recently, in the past few months, lost a major court fight at the UK Supreme Court to sort of unilaterally declare a referendum once again on independence. Um, they had one, of course, in 2014. Oh, oh my God, sorry, grave sin of radio broadcasting there. That was not on silence. Um, tell, us what the, tell us what the notification is. If it's breaking news, we no, can talk no, about no. it. No, uh, no, We'll carry on with this. Um, <laughs> and so you are now risking, uh, and what Nicola Sturgeon had said in that instance was that, OK, well, the next UK general election, which has to happen by January 2025, that will be a, a, re- a pseudo referendum or pseudo referendum on, on Scottish independence. Uh, and, and sort of Westminster again sort of rejecting that. But what this fight will now do is, one emerge Rishi Sunak's government once again into the cultural wars, which Boris Johnson tried to stoke pretty hard during his time. Uh, It's been shown in polling in the the last year uh, that voters have tired of that, that they find it uh, sort of uninviting, that it doesn't deal with the many actual genuine problems that they have, that they find it at times cruel. So we'll see how far someone like Rishi Sunak, who wants to kind of post-premiership, which could be quite soon, be in that kind of Davos ascending global sort of jet set whether he really kind of fights on on the sort of nitty gritty of of these of these proposals about changing your gender or whether or not he just keeps it to the straighter path of you can't change this because it messes up the US of the UK's uh, legal system and that's not what people the sort of vast majority of people around the UK haven't actually voted uh, for these proposals right let us move on to uh, stories that have been... It's a story that's been looking around for about 12, 15 hours now. The resignation of Christina Lambrecht, Germany's defence minister. Um, just remind us what she did that led her to this point, Penny. I mean, there's quite a lot. Der Spiegel yes. has a, an entire article about the mistakes that she made. So more recently, uh, it was a video that she posted on Instagram on New Year's Eve with fireworks going off in the back, talking about the war in Ukraine. So it's a slightly uh, tricky setting there when Ukraine's being actually, it was on that night being shelled and she's sort of in the streets uh, in the fireworks. And she was talking about how it had meant that she'd met all these people that had been uh, very interesting and it helped her 
her develop. So the tone was seen as off. But there was also uh, instances where she she took her son on a helicopter she used to visit troops. And then they then went on from that trip to a holiday on a nearby island. So she was accused of using uh, sort of this uh, this trip and, and, you know, the expense of a helicopter to f- sort of fast track her, her own holiday. Uh, she I mean, f- who doesn't? I mean... Obviously, <laughs> who doesn't? I'm sure you, you fly everywhere in your, in your, yeah. in your helicopter. Yeah, um, this puts on a morning. lot of pressure on Germany because who at this point in time would like the you know a powerful country such as germany in the middle of europe in the middle of a european war to be without a defense minister at the time when actually germany's long term military strategy is currently under such a scrutiny and be changed. Yeah, and particularly you've got a NATO meeting on on Friday, which is pretty important at this key moment in Ukraine. Germany last week and the United States have promised tanks, but actually it's the UK that will deliver first a dozen of its Challenger 2s. That was announced over the weekend. You know, there was much fanfare made last year about Germany uh, stepping up, about it uh, sort of re-engaging in military affairs. Uh, and it seems that it was a lack of delivery in the department, which really brought her down. But uh, the uh, Spiegel is talking about the fact that actually um, the Chancellor Schultz might use this opportunity. He's going to appoint someone from the SPD to, to take over the department. He might use this opportunity now to reset a little bit the policy when it comes to Ukraine. You know, there's a lot of criticism that Germany didn't go far enough. There was the incident famously where uh, you know uh, Christine uh, last year had promised uh, support and then they sort of gave about 5,000 helmets and it was a bit of you know Ukraine wondering, is that it? You're the Europe's biggest manufacturer. Is this all that you can really muster? So it will be interesting to see whether or not the the new person does sort of hit the ground running, whether they try and fast track things as a show, both internally for a domestic audience that they've got this in hand, and internationally as well, that Germany is serious about this, whether or not they get these tanks on the road to Ukraine now. It's funny, the Financial Times is talking about the the race to replace Lambrecht and, and the fact that they've described this job as a poison chalice. In Berlin, apparently, the uh, defence minister's job is called the ejector seat. And that um, it's had 20 defence ministers, I'm just reading this from the FT now, it's had 20 defence ministers since the Second World War, and only one of them went on to become Chancellor, and that was Helmut Schmidt. That was in a time where Germany was rolling back, wasn't it, from from mm. d- involvement in defence. I wonder whether there will be now actually a sort of a, t- a change in fortunes for the position itself. Maybe. It sounds it's a bit like Defence Against the Dark Hearts at Hogwarts. No one really lasts that long in it. (laughs) (laughs) There's a film. Right. Um, Let's move now to the the headline that's been dominating the news in the last couple of hours. The fact that for the first time in six decades, we have a drop in the population in China. Yeah, this is interesting. The world recently crossed uh, reportedly the sort of 8 billion population threshold mark. But uh, for the first time in 60 years, we are now seeing China's uh, population fall. It's going to be a historic shift. And it also means that they're going to have, as we've got in in many sort of Western countries now, this sort of top heavy population period where you have a generation retiring and potentially not the generations underneath that you need to support them. Now, we all know that China for many years until seven 
seven years ago had uh, a one-child policy. Uh, and even though they've abandoned that and tried to incentivize uh, births, you know, with tax incentives, with paternity, uh, it's been very tricky to shift a culture of, of most of those people having children themselves being only children. Uh, and so the population in 2022 fell by 850,000. You know, they've still got 1.41175 billion people. Uh, but later on this year, it's expected India will surpass them as the world's most populous nation. Um, but it's interesting they, that some of the discussion is the fact that getting Chinese people out of this mindset when they've sort of effectively had the money and time to sort of just hothouse one child, uh, you know, particularly giving them sort of extra tuition. And that's something that Xi Jinping is recognizing as a real problem. He's actually, there's been sort of trying to attempts to sort of crack down on, on sort of uh, just the sort of professional tuition uh, industry uh, to try and sort of break this habit. Uh, but at the moment, it doesn't seem to be working. Uh, finally, are you going to be buying Boris Johnson's memoir deal? I mean, well, his book. Is it going to be in what section of the bookshop? Is it in the non-fiction <laughs> section? Top is shelf? it in fiction? Is it science fiction? <laughs> I mean, as far as we know, Boris Johnson is yet to deliver the last book he got paid for. So it is a very bold no, gambit. No, I didn't know that. Now, what was the last the book? The Shakespeare book. Do you remember Boris Johnson's Shakespeare oh, book? Yeah. The book that he spent much of the early pandemic on holiday trying to write because he had already I thought he was trying to run the, the, run the country. I was wrong. No. Well, we'll see in his new book whether or not he was. But okay. re- the reports around the time were that he was busy trying because of his financial woes post-divorce uh, and his new wife at the time, or, or then fiancé, but then almost wife, uh, that it's he was busy wife. trying to uh, write that book because he needed to get the rest of the money. He'd, ha- he'd had the forward for it and he needed to get the rest of the money for actually delivering it. Uh, but now they're taking this bet. Uh, reportedly, uh, his sources are putting out that he's getting paid sort of £6 million uh, pounds for this, his account. But what is interesting, it's HarperCollins, so it's, you know, Rupert Murdoch's uh, one of his companies. But, you know, Rishi uh, Rishi Sunak, potentially, there's lots of rumours that Boris Johnson might try and come back, that Tory MPs might do regicide once again, another mutiny and try and replace him with Boris Johnson for the next election. So it is a risky time to be paying Boris Johnson potentially millions of pounds uh, on the front end, if this is what the deal is, uh, for a book that may not uh, appear and he may be back in office by the time he's got underway and have to pause it again. Contract lawyers, have your pens ready. Mm. Vincent McAvinney, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. The time is 7.33 here in London. We'll be crossing to Davos in just a moment where the time is 8.33. But first, a quick look at the headlines. For the first time in six decades, China's population has fallen. The population in 2022 was 1.4118 billion, fell by 850,000 from the year before. China's birth rate has been declining for years, prompting a slew of policies to slow the trend. The White House says no visitor logs are available for President Biden's private home. It follows the discovery of at least 20 classified documents at his house in Delaware. Some of them were marked top secret, the highest level of classification. And a former commander with the Russian paramilitary group Wagner has claimed asylum in Norway after deserting from the mercenary outfit. Andrei Medvedev is currently being held in Oslo, where he faces charges of illegal entry to Norway. His lawyer says his client left Wagner after witnessing war crimes in Ukraine. This is a globalist. Stay tuned. We've got a bit of an exciting moment on The Globalist right now because uh, I am going to be handing over the controls to Davos. The second half of the show is going to be led by Monocle's Marcus Hippie. Marcus, how are you up the mountains? 
I'm, I'm very well, Emma. <laughs> How are you yourself? I'm wondering, what are you going to do I'm for just, the next 25 oh, minutes or so? Marcus, I'm going to be hanging on every delicious word that drops through the airways. Absolutely not. But I really want to know is how... So, so when we last spoke, it was a monocle on Sunday and the domestic arrangements for the monocle team were well under uh, scrutiny. And I just need to know, how's the chalet? Oh, the chalet is amazing. I, I, I can't give you much gossip, but we have barely been spending any time over there. Sadly, Chandra Kurt's wine recommendations. We haven't been able to take advantage of them quite yet, but hopefully a bit later in the week. Because we are so busy here in Davos, I'm just going to give you a quick idea about what's happening today here in Davos. In a couple of hours' time, we'll be hearing from the founder of Klaus Schwab and also Alain Berset, who's the Swiss president. A bit later, there will be a speech by... Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission. We'll be hearing from the vice premier of, of China a bit later, from the Finnish prime minister, Sanna Marin, and also from Pedro Sanchez, the prime minister of Spain. So all this coming up today is going to be a busy day ahead. But indeed, Emma, I will take over from Davos now for a bit, and we'll be back with you at the end of the programme. Indeed, some 3,000 leaders and experts are gathered here in Davos for the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. One of them is the Finnish former Prime Minister Alexander Stubb, who is currently a director and professor at the School of Transnational Governance at the European University Institute in Florence. Thanks to his remarkable political career, he's been here in Davos a number of times. I met up with him and asked first what the actual number of those visits may be. I think it's about eight. I was here first as foreign minister, then as trade minister, then as prime minister and finance minister. Then I was here as vice president of the European Investment Bank. And this is my third time now as professor. So enjoying it as much every time. Tell me about what you think makes this World Economic Forum meeting so special. Well, I think there are many things. I mean, first of all, it gives you the pulse of the world in January. Okay. Last year was in May, but you know you get a sense. Okay, you know what's boiling, what's happening, and you know things change from like, oh, China is emerging, or oh my God, Trump is elected to climate change environment. It's actually a very inclusive forum. So if you look at what they're trying to do, actually, is to bring people from around the world together to discuss common problems and. A year like this is super interesting in the sense that, you know, multilateralism is on the downward spiral. There's a lot of talk about protectionism. There's war, of course, in Ukraine. So a lot of people are trying to suss out that, okay, how do we get out of this impasse and go back to the 30-year holiday that we had after the Cold War? Exactly, the 30-year holiday is over. Do you think the mood is different in Davos this time around? No, not really. And I, to be honest, it could be that You know, I'm nowadays wearing my academic sandals or, I guess, boots. But the truth is that you end up taking things a little bit less personally and a little bit less emotionally when you're in academia. You can look at things from the outside. And I think if you start from the basic premise that there's always going to be a crisis. I mean, people here talk about polycrisis, right? So we go from one crisis to another. I don't think the mood here is that bad. Tell me more about how you saw things differently when you were a politician compared to how you see things as an academic? Well, I guess when I was in politics and I was in government for eight years, it's pretty much crisis management from morning to night. I used to joke around that when I became 
foreign minister in April 2008. It only took four months for Russia to attack Georgia and Lehman Brothers to collapse and things went downward from then. And then when I actually left office in 2016, well, things started to look a little bit more upbeat. But okay, then came Brexit and Donald Trump. I don't take the blame for that. But I guess the bottom line is that in academia and my current life, I have more time to read and reflect and write and I'm less worried about what I say and what the reactions are. So it's sort of academic freedom versus responsibility while in office and I must say that I do enjoy the academic freedom bit. Do you miss politics? I don't miss domestic politics. I I like the international stuff and I do follow what's going on in Finland of course as well but do I miss the day-to-day politics? No I don't, not at all. If you read what people are writing about and if you go online and see what people say about the World Economic Forum and what's happening here in Davos, I guess it's quite easy to be skeptical and think that you don't go and address the world's issues in a meeting like this. But then there's also the other aspects. You bring people together to the same place. You have these amazing discussions. How optimistic do you feel about what can be achieved over here in Davos? The starting point, I guess, is to say that anytime you're not yourself invited and there is this sort of aura of secrecy or at least a feeling of it that you have the so-called world elite, 600 CEOs, over 50 heads of state and government present, you know, you sort of start, what are they doing over there? But the second point is, for instance, I was at an event this morning where a guy who's a refugee, has been invited here. I don't know how long it took for him to get here. And he posed a question to Klaus Schwab that what's the value added for people like me? And and he said, you know, he, he gets that question very often and he would have dozens of answers, but he'll just give you one. And that is Gavi. So that is the organization that basically deals with vaccinations, right? And it's been very instrumental in the middle of the pandemic. Well, Gavi was basically founded and invented here in Davos, where Schwab and other people asked world leaders and business and actually Microsoft's Bill Gates to come together and, you know, can we do something in this field? So there's a lot of stuff that happens that's not discussed and the World Economic Forum is not here to sort of tout their business and say, oh, you know, we've done this, we've done that. They do a lot of work in the background. We talked about already how much things have changed in the last 12 months or so. Let's just look at what's been happening in our home country of Finland, the NATO application and so forth. How do you see Finland's place in the world is changing? Well, I think we are in a geopolitical hotspot at the moment and we are more interesting than we were, say, in the immediate post-Cold War era in the sense that we felt that things could be stabilized by our border. And remember that we do have double the border of any other EU country or NATO country put together. So we are an interesting place. And of course, I think for NATO and for Europe, we're also a safe pair of hands in the sense that we have one of the largest militaries in Europe. So we are a security provider people look at Finland in a different way. We were very quick to change tack and apply for NATO membership. I think that was quite easy to do because the country comes together around security. We've done that throughout our history. You know, when we are at these linchpins or changes in history, we're very quick to change ourselves. We did that in 1809 when we became an autonomous part of Russia and maximized our autonomy. We did that in 1917 when, in the middle of the Bolshevik Revolution, we uh, declared independence. You know, we accepted reluctantly, 
peace from Stalin, lost 10% of our territory after World War II. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed, boom, we applied for EU membership. And now when Putin attacks Ukraine, we decided time to go to the NATO. As an academic, what are your thoughts about the application process and what is happening with Turkey and Hungary? Well, I think Finland and Sweden are dealing with the situation very well. I'm, I'm not you know, worried about Hungary as such. I mean, that'll be sorted. And I'm also not that worried about Turkey. It is domestic politics. That's the way in which at least I interpret it. And I'm quite happy to see the way in which both Finland and Sweden have dealt with the situation. So they're pretty much cool, calm and collected. Now back to Davos, as you mentioned already, you've been here in many, many roles. I'm wondering, is it different being here as an academic compared to what it was like when you visited Davos, for example, as a prime minister? Yeah, there's a little bit less, how would I say, pomp and fanfare when I'm in which academic, sense? in the sense that I don't you know, have five people following me and security and, and the rest of it. And the program that I have is much more free. I can do pretty much what I want, which means that, you know, in four days I pack about 10 to 15 meetings or interviews or sessions or discussions. And of course, I'm a little bit freer to say what I want, which is always nice. I don't cause a scandal if I say something improper, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. And just finally, what are you looking forward to most when it comes to this year's Davos? I'm looking forward to two sessions that I have on Thursday one on the Western Balkans and one of the future of geopolitics. I'm working on a book right now about the age of disorder and how basically competition, conflict and cooperation will shape the 21st century. I'm like a sponge. I'm going to different sessions and try to get new ideas and jotting them down in my notebook. Finland's former Prime Minister Alexander Stubb there. He is currently a director and professor at the School of Transnational Governance at the European University Institute in Florence. You are listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. It's 8.44 a.m. here in Davos. We'll continue with today's trade and economy news after a short break. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Welcome back. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Markus Hippi. It's time to talk trade and economy with Vicky Price, economist and former joint head of the UK government's economic service. Vicky, good morning to you. You've been also looking at the discussions that have been taking place here in Davos, and it's gradually becoming pretty clear that there is a fair bit of worry about a recession and what's happening now. Indeed, and uh, good morning. What we've seen uh, is uh, you know, a number of surveys that have been done both by uh, the World Economic Forum itself. Uh, they talked to uh, loads of chief economists where they found that a very substantial percentage were quite pessimistic and expected uh, a recession in 2023, mainly because of high costs and low wages. 
um, and also PwC has done this survey, um, which uh, shows that CEOs are the most pessimistic that they have been in over a decade. And, and that's, uh, in a way, quite worrying, given that uh, we have had a pretty bad uh, and in some cases quite indifferent uh, in terms of growth um, 2022. And uh, the fact that 2023 looks even worse, but of course we still have the ongoing war in Ukraine. But there are nevertheless some positive signs around, particularly the, the drop in inflation that we are seeing. But there are serious worries nevertheless that because the central bankers are trying, have been trying to constrain inflation by raising interest rates, we might end up as uh, Ken Rogoff, who was uh, chief economist at the IMF before and now a professor at Harvard, uh, is warning that we have accumulated during COVID a very substantial uh, debt, both public debt, corporate debt, and also personal debt. And with the rises in interest rates that we are seeing, uh, what is happening is it's making the situation pretty dangerous. And we may indeed be uh, staring another financial crisis in the face. So uh, there are concerns of that nature, which are affecting, I think, a mood across many, many sectors of the economy. Absolutely. Do you think that worry is going to lead into some kind of an action? Can anything be done to try to change the course of what's happening with the economy? Well, the, the interesting thing is, of course, so much of it is political. And we do know that a lot of the discussions in, in Davos, of course, will have to do with what to do uh, in relation to the war in Ukraine and the extra support. And geopolitics is changing. And what we're seeing, actually, is that... Uh, regions are also beginning to worry about being left behind, such as Europe worrying about what's happening in the U.S. with the Inflation Reduction Act and whether we're going to start having, you know, the signs of of a, a technology war, if you like, to ensure that various regions uh, re- retain their competitiveness. So uh, whether there will be cooperation, therefore, in this is is question mark. And what I think people are worrying about is that what we've seen recently is a sort of synchronized, even though it wasn't necessarily coordinated, increase in interest rates, which uh, is sort of following, if you like, central bank doctrine, let's do something about inflation, which is uh, bringing the, the various economies into the brink of, of a possible recession. Now, can we coordinate? a change of policy well maybe uh, you know what would come out of davos might indicate that perhaps one should be a lot lot more careful you know, the economy is already slowing down but just to add one very quick thing it's interesting there is this gloom and doom if you like around in terms of expectations for the world economy but if you look again at at the surveys and what they're saying particularly the pwc one and others there's still uh, an issue of shortage of labor. There's still an issue of skills. Yes, we've seen investment bankers uh, getting rid of quite a lot of people recently. But in reality, uh, a very large percentage of the people interviewed, in fact, the majority, do not intend to reduce the labor force uh, and do not intend to cut their wages either. So in other words, there's still quite, you know, quite a lot of strong demand for labor. And we are in a very strange situation where you have that on the one hand and yet predictions of a serious slowdown on the other. A strange situation indeed. Let's let's continue with a look at some other news headlines. China is, is there again making news. Yes, I mean, that's a really, really important part of the whole puzzle in terms of what happens to the world economy, but also what happens to energy prices, which have been falling. I mean, China, as we know, has had a zero COVID policy uh, and now, of course, it's relaxed it. So during the zero COVID policy, which was only relaxed at the end of last year, the economy slowed down very significantly because obviously, you know, large parts of China were just not functioning. Um, and uh, the growth rate in China inevitably suffered as well. Uh, so we had data which just come out which suggests that China grew by only 
in uh, 2022, well, that's pretty low by comparison to recent trends. I mean, it was double that previous year. And, and of course, uh, we're talking about, you know, just a few years ago, achieving almost double digit growth rates. Well, there is that uh, issue. What will happen to China in 2023? How fast will it recover? Now, of course, with COVID uh, being hit, you know, hitting quite a large part of the population, what we may find is that, in fact, output continues to be pretty, pretty weak for some time and then starts recovering later in the year. So again, when you look at 2023 as a whole, the question is, what type of trend are we going to have? But with it, uh, of course, um, you know, the demand for energy China is very significant in that whole global energy uh, picture is slowing down as well in China has slowed down with the results that world's energy prices have also come down have come down very significantly when you look at oil of course um, you know it's, it's had periods of, of perhaps a little bit of an increase and then coming down again but uh, the rates we're seeing the levels we're seeing are, are pretty low by comparison to what we were expecting and the you know oil of course it's below $90 a barrel for quite some time and and then gas prices falling very very significantly and uh, and Europe is benefiting from that substantially at present so there are some positive signs from that uh, which should give a little bit of encouragement to people there but of course you still need to have world growth recovering to some respectable level if you like in order for all these companies that are represented there to see serious growth in 2023 Vicky Price thank you very much for this update today here on Monocle 24 You are listening to a special edition of The Globalist coming to you live from the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos. Although you get a vast number of world leaders and business leaders here in Davos, there are a number of delegates who represent non-profit organizations that also have their input to the discussions and decisions that are made here. One of them is Max Frieda, a co-founder and chief creative officer at Artolution, which works to support and train local leaders in the arts and to make the world a better place at the same time. Good morning, Max. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Can you try to tell us more about how Artolution works? Were you happy with my explanation? It was excellent. Uh, So thank you so much for having us here. And Artolution is an international community-based public arts and education organization. So we train artists and educators in different refugee camps, conflict-affected communities, and communities who've been through trauma, how to be able to work with children, families, adolescents, to be able to tell their stories through being able to build large-scale public sculptures out of trash and recycled materials, to be able to do large-scale murals, being able to do puppetry, performance, dance, recycled uh, fashion, all different types of programs that are interactive ways of being able to build narratives about what is most important to the communities. And so for us, we actually have regional hubs in five different regions around the world, each of which has teams of artists who are refugees themselves and host communities, half men, half women, in the Rohingya refugee camps in Bangladesh, which is the largest refugee camp in human history to have ever existed, with over one million people living on the border of Myanmar currently, on the border of South Sudan in Uganda, in the Bidi Bidi refugee settlement, on the border of Syria in Jordan, in Lebanon, as well as on the border of uh, Venezuela, in Mm. Colombia, and in the U.S. 
Max, the World Economic Forum commissioned a large-scale mural called The Color of Resilience from our solution. Tell us more about it. Yeah, so we were asked to actually tell a story where each different section is a different chapter made in a different crisis hotspot around the world. So we were able to have hundreds of children and teenagers to be able to be facilitated to tell their stories through interactive sessions of actually being asked, where did you come from? How did you get to where you are? And what are your dreams for the future? So we created these four different chapters of a massive mural that's now being displayed at the World Economic Forum. Forum. And what's fascinating is that many of these people cannot be here. Many of them are in locked refugee camps where they cannot even leave and have their voice heard in this space to policymakers, change makers, and those who are able to make an indelible difference. Here is something that is actually the first time that there's ever been refugee artwork displayed mm -hmm. here at the World Economic Forum. So the, the people attending Davos often represent the global financial elite and remarkable wealth. How does all that make you feel about the potential role arts can play in helping address global issues? We need to build bridges. There's over a hundred million displaced people in the world today. Now is the most important and urgent time to be able to humanize and democratize the voices of people who don't get to be here. And when we look at ways of being able to build these types of bridges, we can see that the arts and creativity and culture bring out the best in people. If we imagine that this orb of light inside of each of us is something that we can relate to as humans, that we can relate to as people who may have never been to this type of a space or a space where there's been severe trauma, like in a refugee camp or a conflict zone. We need to find a way to bring those voices into this space and to be able to find new intersectoral approaches that can bring together the private sector, the public sector, looking at development, looking at the UN, of new ways of taking the arts and culture, which are incredibly brilliant skills and talents that already exist in these communities. How can we use that to catalyze issues that need to be changed, whether it be about gender equity, whether it be about education, livelihoods, whether we look at climate action, that we need to use the pre-existing strength in these communities to catalyze the change that's needed now more than ever. Tell me about what kind of a day you have ahead today. We're going to be having a big session um, that's going to be about cultural leaders as uh, agents for social change and catalysts for change. And so I'm going to be doing a session at 5.30 today, as well as actually going to be talking to a series of leaders here about how we can use the arts and culture as a new form of being able to look at crisis response. And one of the things that I think matters the most is that for us at Artolution, we really believe that the next phase in the history of arts and education is using the arts to amplify the messages of communities that many times don't get the chance to be heard, but that they need to be heard not just as being victims, but that we can look at going from being a victim to a survivor, from becoming as a survivor to becoming an agent of social change, and that to go from being an agent of social change to becoming a maker of history, and that this is actually history being made, because these communities, that their voices are now on a platform that have never actually been able to be on before, and that this is a groundbreaking moment, really, in the history of the arts and education here at Davos. Max Fried from Our Solution, thank you very much. I hope you have a very successful week here in Davos. Emma, back in London, we are nearing the end of the programme, but obviously our Davos team will be back on air throughout the week here on Monocle 24. Yes, when, what are we looking forward to today, Marcus? 
Well, it's going to be continuing the same way what we did yesterday, which is to network, meet people. It's actually amazing, this concentration of amazing stories here in Davos. So I've been here in this Congress room where a lot of these delegates are as well. And I'm just checking people's blue name batches and just Googling them and, and seeing trying to find out where they come from <laughs> and just doing interviews. It's, it's an absolutely amazing event. And I think you should come here next time as well. I shall try to do my best uh, Googling some blue badges. Marcus Hippie and all the team in Davos, thank you so much. Uh, We'll be hearing from them a little later today on Monocle 24. But for now, that's all we have time for today's edition of The Globalist. Many thanks to all my guests and to our producers, Christy O'Grady and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher was Andre Nicola Parmintian and our team in Davos to Marcus Hippie and Carlotta Ribello. Many thanks. After the headlines, more music on the way. I'll be back with the briefing at midday here in London. The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.